Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Brian Frankel. I'm an attorney and producer. You might know me from the Wheaton Film Festival, the Brian Frankel Law Firm, or my work with the Washington Area Lawyers for the Arts. Brian Frankel, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Chris, thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. And because you have um, a background in law and because you wear a lot of different hats, outside of filmmaking, I want to give this audience a deeper sense of who you are. So I'm going to read from your bio. And like I always say, this is the internet. So if anything sounds off or isn't correct, uh, feel free to amend to what I read. Brian A. Frankel is an award-winning independent filmmaker and attorney who helps companies and creative professionals achieve their goals. Through his practice as a business, entertainment, and intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., He represents film and video producers, media distribution companies, screenwriters, Fortune 50 companies, technology startups, government subcontractors, online marketplaces, social media and marketing firms, professional athletic teams, consultants, freelancers, podcasters, live event producers, and talent. Mr. Frankel is active and engaged in the creative community. He currently serves as the chairman of the Education Committee for the Washington Area Lawyers for the Arts and executive director of the D.C. Filmmakers and D.C. Media Makers, the festival director for the Wheaton Film Festival, and is the past vice president of the University of Florida Law Alumni Group for D.C. Mr. Franklin has produced and or directed music videos, films, television shows, commercials, and multimedia projects for clients, including MTV, Spike TV, Motorola, M-Audio, Def Jam South Records, The Merchant Marines, and The Independent Feature Project. He was also honored as a Kodak Emerging Filmmaker. He is the managing member of the Brian Franco Law Firm and uh, counsel with Copyright Counselors, LLC, Mr. Frankel is admitted to practice in the District of Columbia, Florida, and before the D.C. Federal Court. He has served on the Board of Directors for the Washington Area Lawyers for the Arts since 2013. He lives in Silver Spring, Maryland. Brian, that is quite a bio and resume. You've been busy, my friend, so... (laughs) Let me ask you this. How did your family inform and inspire who you are today? I know you grew up in a close knit Jewish family, right? Yeah. So uh, I would say, so my parents split when I was, uh, or they divorced when I was younger. So, uh, you know, I, I guess being able to jump from one dynamic to another, you know, going from my just joint custody going from my mom's house to my dad's place 
back and forth. Um, you know, it, it was like jumping from one ecosystem to another. How and old so, were you? So I must have been in like I uh, must have been like seven, mm-hmm. seven or eight when they split up. Um, and and so uh, if you're asking, you know, and I didn't know this question was coming up, and it's a great question. Uh, and I haven't looked at it through this lens before, Chris. So it's interesting. But my initial reaction is, uh, so in having to go from mom's place to dad's place, they were it was like jumping from a, a hot water to a cold water, just so different, the energy and the setting and everything. And so I would say in my professional career, like we mentioned wearing different hats, and I think the ability to have a different reality, a different set of responsibilities, a different dynamic. I probably would say that would be something that I, that I think my childhood prepared me for. Um, and then another thing that, that not a lot of people know is I actually grew up in a hotel. So my dad, uh, wow. my dad owned a hotel on South beach in Miami. Okay. And I worked in that hotel from the time I was in fourth grade. Uh, and so, and so that definitely prepared me uh, for being involved in business and dealing with people. Uh, and an interesting element is like my dad would, uh, he would leave on vacation. And that means that my brother and I would be sitting there running the hotel for a week or something like that. <laughs> what does that mean? Give me some details on what you did at a hotel in, yeah, as a fourth so- grader. Uh, so it was probably, you know, I, he would, he didn't leave when I was in fourth grade, probably when I was like seventh, eighth grade was when he could leave. Uh, and my brother's a few years older than me. So, but stuff, we would collect rents. We would rent rooms. (laughs) Uh, we would, you know, clean the rooms, do the laundry. I mean, this wasn't like some big glamorous hotel. This was like a, you know, 40, 50 rooms. Uh, and there were people who'd be there for the season, yeah. And people who'd be there for a, a shorter term, and so it was running a business. And so now, Chris, you know, it's like when when someone talks to me about wanting to build their dreams or wanting to build a production or anything, that experience is with me. And and so uh, I would say those two things from my childhood, <laughs> growing up in a hotel in Miami Beach, you know when Miami vice was going around and Miami had really undergone the big shift mm-hmm. because of the Cuban boat lift. I mean, we saw Miami go from like being a high, really a high element prestige place to be, to being something that was going through a lot of challenges and then going way back up beyond where it ever was. Right. And so riding that out on Miami beach, renting rooms to people is a reflection of who's going on around you and what's happening there. Uh, so, yeah. And, and so I carried that experience with me. Yeah, I'm sure it was a little bit easier for you to be an entrepreneur having that background than um, had you not had you not done that. And you're right about Miami, by the way, too. Um, right now, there's a lot of people lobbying for it to be the next tech hub in, in the United States. I mean, it's already become sort of a playground for art collectors and art investors and because of art Basel and, you know, the things that happen there and the money that flows through there, but here comes Silicon Valley right behind it. Now Um, here comes entrepreneurialism right behind it. Here comes investment dollars. So keep an eye on Miami in the future. I am curious though, based on what you said, 
what that transition was like when you had to go to your mom's house. It sounds like your parents worked together really well to, to raise you and your, your siblings, maybe, maybe not, but how vastly different was it? Yeah. So was the experience at your mom's versus at, at the hotel? All right. Yeah. So, you know, my mom, Jewish mom, um, you know, works hard to, uh, works hard to support her kids in terms of like emotional support, more food than you could imagine, you know, being a warm, nurturing person. Uh, and my dad, you know, vastly opposite, uh, you know, he, he pull yourself up by the bootstraps, keep your emotions in many times close to the cuff. Don't let people show, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, if you feel weak or damaged, don't necessarily show that, you know, put forward a strong face, keep, keep your wits about you. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I would say it's the traditional male versus female energies. Um, my mom's place was just, you know, it was a traditional house. And so it was calm and relaxing. Um, and you had a room where you could close the door and feel like you escaped the world. Uh, being at my dad's in the hotel, you know, it was, it, it was, it's like, there was always something going on. There was always yeah. some kind of drama, especially Miami beach in the 1980s. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I mean, there was always, and we were in a, in a hotel. And so, you know, the drama didn't always necessarily include us, but there was always stuff going on and it, it, Miami was rough and tumble. So, you know, there'd be situations where people would have issues. And, you know, so growing up, uh, I, I would say in some ways, you know, just seeing the underside of life, you know, where we'd see hookers and drug deals and drug dealers and, you know, people, uh, having domestic violence and, you know, uh, Miami had that wet foot, dry foot thing. So there'd be Cuban, uh, refugees who'd wash up on the beach and we'd see them running by the hotel. Uh, is there a story that sticks out in your mind? One story you could point to, is there a favorite story? Um, so, Ooh. I mean, one story would be where there was a, a, re a refugee. We didn't know who, who or what the story was. All we knew is we're sitting in the lobby. Uh, and, you know, back then it was a different vibe. And so you just like hang out. And so there'd always be people just hanging out. And it was, it was a lot lower key. And someone comes running in to the, uh, to the hotel and then darts up like stairs and we're sitting there like, who is this? What is this? And we didn't know if it was a vagrant, a criminal, a mugger. And so, you know, we had a Doberman uh, who was our, our dog and my dad, you know, he kept a gun. And so, you know, like I go run and grab the dog. My brother grabs like a baseball bat. My dad grabs the gun and we chase up. And, you know, the guy's like hiding on the third floor in like a back corner or hallway or something. And we sit there and hold the guy trying to figure out what's going on. And then uh, eventually, I, I don't know who it was, like either Miami Beach police or 
some kind of immigration enforcement, you know, they, they came and, uh, and, and took possession of them. But, you know, we, it was just like, who is this? What's happening? Uh, and so that, that's a story that, that stands out. Um, yeah, but there's, you know, there's lots of stories. Uh, yeah, there's, there's just so many stories <laughs> and both I, really good and really bad. And yeah. Uh, you know, is one of the endearing stories would be, uh, for years, there'd be Jewish families who would come down for snowbirds is what they were called. You know, oh, they'd wow. be there for three, six months at a time, just staying in the hotel because the hotel had efficiencies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just like at so at some point it would be like a hotel full of grandmas and grandpas. <laughs> and so that's one of my favorite stories. Like my early childhood was just surrounded by such such love. And uh it was really nice. My parents would entertain them. This is before they split up. Uh they'd entertain. So it would be a whole season. It would be like bingo games and just everything. And it was it, it catered meals and it was just so charming. So yeah. I, I feel like I left, I lived a lifetime, Chris, before I ever even like graduated high school. I had been through such, such a diverse set of, uh, of circumstances. I almost envy you uh, just to have that wisdom uh, from such an array, a vast array and, and variety of people from different backgrounds and experiences. One of these, and feel free to set me straight on this if, if you'd like and put me in my place on this. I have uh, met a lot of Cuban friends um, that live in Miami, and then Cuban friends that um, might have had some time in Miami, but were out of there before they could remember what it was like to live there. And the Cuban friends that grew up in Miami all hate Fidel Castro. And the ones that didn't, seem to sympathize with Fidel Castro. So it's like, I, I never understood that. I, all I could kind of come up with is that the effect of the media, the media is really strong and, and the way universities work is strong where if you have a university that's sort of pro Castro, you'll, you'll sympathize with that. And if you, if you grew up in Miami and you got there on a boat, like you mentioned, uh, you probably were running for a very, very good reason. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't met that many folks in the U.S. who are pro-Castro. Um, you you alluded, Chris, to like influence and, you know, culture. And so Miami, so imagine that you have a country and everybody who's controlling that country, all the people who have power, who have wealth, in a very short amount of time, they leave, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the people who left ended up in Miami. And so these are people who lost who lost their home, their sense of security in the world, their wealth, and had to start over. And so they uh, really hate or really dislike that that regime because they felt that what they had won, what they had owned, their control of the world, their identity was taken away from them. And time has not made those wounds for the people still in Miami. I don't think it's made those wounds subside. I think it really has made those wounds 
grow deeper and it's become part of a cultural narrative. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of them still hope they hold on to the hope that they're somehow going to be compensated for what they lost. Uh, yeah. And so if you go to Tallahassee today, Chris, you can hear that narrative happening in the halls of government. Um, and I haven't been in that setting here in DC, but I, I would bet you that if we ever normalized the relationship with Cuba, I think that's one of the things that might be holding up that normalization is there's people of political influence who lost money and they want to be compensated. Yeah. The reparations we, we don't hear about. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the reparations battle we, we don't hear about. Yeah. Um, and, and it's cultural, you know, like what do we, what do we sit at our table together and talk about? Right. And if someone's yeah. in, in Miami, they have their, their cafe con leche, they have their pastelito, they have their cigar, they play dominoes. Mm. You know, this yeah. is the stereotypical Cuban American experience that I would see. And not everyone's like that, but, you know, this would be that perceived snapshot of right, that right, Cuban American right. experience. And they sit there talking about uh, that Fidel regime, what they had, what they lost, what they hope to get together again, uh, and these things. Uh, and so I think that's part of it. And, and I would say people not in Miami don't have that same Cuban experience. I, I have no Cuban blood in me, but growing up in Miami culturally, you know, I would say that you I probably, I do relate to that Cuban American experience, uh, the story of immigrants and, uh, and to be in Miami is to understand and to experience some Cuban culture because it's, it's just such a dominant and I would think overall healthy part of Miami. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And um, you're spot on because the, the, the friend I'm thinking about that grew up in Miami, her family was apparently really wealthy in Cuba before Castro and they lost everything. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I asked about your upbringing, the difference between your mom and dad is because I wanted to go into this place where it's like, in the research for you to prepare for this conversation, the question just kept coming back up in your mind and in your heart, filmmaker first or attorney first, maybe in your mind, you're an attorney first and a filmmaker second, maybe in your heart, you're a filmmaker first and an attorney second. If you had to at first, you know, which one do you feel you are? And then second, if you had to attribute you growing up and, and following this, the path of being an attorney, does that come from your experience with your dad? Or do you attribute that more to the calmness of your mom and the filmmaking creative side? Who would you attribute that to? Maybe, maybe both are the same person. Um, so the easy answer is I'm a filmmaker, right? In my heart, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, and in my vocation. So I was, I was out in the real world for 10 years before I ever went back to law school. And uh, I was a filmmaker. I, I owned a yeah. video production company. And so I was doing all these things. And then I, I decided that I was, Chris, I was done with the 18 hour days. Right. I was like, I'm done with this. I don't see this being uh, sustainable. Uh, I don't want to move to New York or LA. Right. And so, uh, and so I just looked at where I was and I was like, okay, uh, law is the next step. 
you know, I looked at my entertainment lawyer at the time. She uh, she's in L.A. now, but she was down in Miami and smart, capable, competent person. And I was like, I like her seat at the table. Um, and going back to it as a kid, I, you know, I always had a joke that I was going to, you know, I was going to be like a pilot, an architect and a lawyer. That was my that was my joke. I was like, I'm going to build buildings. I'm going to represent the deal and I'm going to fly myself off for vacation. Uh, <laughs> And so from an early age, I, I liked the law. Uh, and then it was, it was only after being in the real world for a while that I was like, okay, it's either now or never. And so uh, being a filmmaker motivated me to become, to go after that original dream from being a kid of doing a lawyer. Uh, and it, in, in the real world, it's not an either or. So a lot of times it's, it's a lot of the same deals. It's just, where, where's my seat at the table? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I always tell people, if I win the lottery, uh, what would I, what would I choose to continue doing and filmmaking and producing, I would continue to do, to do just because I love it. And it it's in my heart. Um, being a lawyer, I enjoy it. I enjoy the opportunities it affords me. I enjoy that I'm able to help other people in in their creative expression and chasing their dreams. Um, so I, uh, if I have to work, I've chosen that until I win the lottery, if I have to work and if my career is defined with a label, uh, my career will my career will be defined by the label of attorney. Um, but who I am in my heart. Uh, I'm a creative in my heart. And my, one of my main sources of creativity is capturing images, capturing voice, capturing sound and bringing them together in a way that, that promotes something. And whether it's fantasy or uh, whether it's uh, inspiration or whether it's a call for action to make the world a better place uh, in my heart, I, I would view myself as a filmmaker. Thank you for that. That's interesting because I suppose I assume that the transition was attorney to filmmaker, but really your transition was filmmaker to attorney. And I, and I think that's just because in the past it's like, well, I've been an attorney, I've been representing creatives. And then I got this opportunity, realized I have some stories to tell too. So let me be a filmmaker. But for you, it's the, it's the other way around. That's, pretty darn cool um yeah yeah thanks i was sitting in a there was a cable network and i was sitting in a pitch meeting with them where i had hustled for months to create this <laughs> opportunity yeah. and so i bring in my entertainment lawyer and uh we're having the meeting and it goes it goes pretty well and i i pitched them my project and they give me all these steps that i need to do in order to advance the project along. And then, you know, she's sitting there and she is helping me. But then when this is done, she has the relationship, the benefit of that relationship that I work to create, she now has access to it. And Chris, she's not tied to like one deal like I was. Yeah. (laughs) She's able now to use that relationship and uh, present other deals if if that opportunity arises and and I know that she she did get to present a few other deals and so I looked at that 
and I examined what's, you know, what seat at the table do I want? Right. And, yeah. Uh, you know, in, in being a lawyer, it's like, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for my clients, but I'm also able to have, you know, like her, I'm able to have these relationships. And so let's say that I bring in a client and we make that deal happen. Uh, and there's a friendly, good opportunity that that's able to happen again and again. Uh, I, I, I liked that seat at the yeah. table and it's one that could help me with my own individual projects. And it's one that can help me have a greater impact for my clients. Uh, Cause I think a, a lot of being a lawyer is being able to have relationships. So it, it's not just like, okay, can I read this contract? But it's like, okay, can I read this contract? And then if we need to bring someone else in, who do I know? And, and I, and I think being an attorney let somebody in a healthy way, build, groom, uh, maintain relationships. Yeah. It's very similar to being in film because film is basically your reputation and relationships that you have. Um, I wouldn't, I would say the way you describe what you do in laws is, is very, very uh, similar to that uh, for sure. I want to give this audience a couple of titles here, films you've worked on, directed, produced. So In Hot Water, Dead Run, Danny Morgan's Authentic Eats, ADC Original, Odyssey, um, Bethesda, Action Inc., um, Cherry Blossom Whisperer, to name a few. Um, So a lot of these are short films. But among your own credits and, and things you've directed or produced, which one of those films that I just named did you learn the most from? So I would probably say In Hot Water mm-hmm. was the one that I learned the most from. Um, and yeah, I, I would say In Hot Water. And that was, uh, that was down in Miami. And, you know, we had some, some talent and, you know, the talent actually used that to go out to LA and build, you know, build bigger careers. Oh, Uh, nice. And so I was the producer, I was the director, I was the writer. Um, (laughs) I was able to call in all these people who I had helped do stuff. And this was before I was a a lawyer, um, before I even decide to go to law school. And it was just such a fun experience because I had people with me who, uh, who I knew I liked, I trusted. Uh, so I felt like everyone had my back. Uh, and I was able to really create the expression, uh, that I had in my mind and it really showed up on the screen. Uh, and it, you know, and so I enjoyed it and it it was basically a very, campy over the top tale about revenge, uh, <laughs> some domineering guy tries to control yeah. some woman and then he wrongs her and then they get revenge on the guy. A tale uh, is all this time. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it was just really campy and it was really, it was really fun on set. Uh, and it was, a, it was a healthy film to work on, um, exhausting, but really healthy. And, and so I would say that is probably my favorite um, and then a lot of these other ones you mentioned. Um, so 
yeah, a lot of these, like uh, now I real I wear the role where I don't necessarily want to be the producer, director, editor, all this stuff. I, yeah. It's a lot to carry all those pills. Yeah. So a, a lot of times now, Chris, what I do is I produce in batches and I will have crews underneath me mm-hmm. and they're the goal is to, uh, is to empower them and to facilitate them developing creative expression. And I really, in a lot of cases become the executive producer where I help, I help put the teams together. If there's problems or things stall out in the teams, I help push them through it. Uh, And so before COVID we would produce anywhere between 10 and 20 movies, short films a year. Mm -hmm. And we'd often do it in batches uh, either one or two big batches at a time. And the framework I came up with was called make a movie in a month. I saw that on the Wheaton film festival site, uh, explain, make a movie in a month to, to, to the audience. Sir, certainly. So make a movie in a month is where we bring together people. So we have events where we put it out there and we explain what's going on. And then we will have almost like it's a consolidated studio system. We'll have people pitch ideas And the folks in the audience vote on these ideas, not with a show of hands, but with actually signing up to work on the ideas that have been pitched. Oh, wow. And then we will have 30 days for the folks to actually make that movie. Uh, And a lot of times it'll be on a theme. And so I believe that filmmaking is a power for for healthy development and healthy expression. Mm -hmm. And so we're not doing movies about things like, you know, like crime or revenge. We're doing it about like uh, family or art or uh, striving or building your dream or healthy community expression or, uh, you know, diversity. Things where we can look at elements and stories in our community and something that's healthy that you take away either saying, oh, I really like that about our community, or I don't like that, but this film creates a conversation point where we can improve upon. Right. Um, and so and so that really is the goal with the Make a Movie in a Month, is it's not just telling stories to tell stories. It's telling stories about our community that uplift our community, highlight what's good, and highlight the things that that we want to have deeper conversations about to fix. And I've been doing it since 2016. Uh, I am uh, in the process of transforming it into a digital experience because with COVID, it's not necessarily as easy, Chris, to have like 100, 150 people in a room. (laughs) Yeah. And so we create film crews and I come up with a suggested schedule that the film crews follow. And I, I work with, uh, I work with the team lead who generally is a producer director, but not always. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I also bring in, uh, a, a, a lieutenant, you know, somebody who, who will be learning from me. And oftentimes it's an internship where someone's getting college credit for doing that. I have in the past, I've tried to have two or three interns every, every year, with COVID, it's a little tougher. Uh, and so either I will do all the work if I don't have an intern. If I do have an intern, then 
I will be teaching them with me as we executive produce 10 or 20 movies. And uh, so it's very meta where like I'm doing the work or I'm teaching somebody to do the work that I would be doing. But now I'm like sitting over their shoulder and helping them do it. That sounds incredibly rewarding. That It really does. And it's, it's right up our alley. When I say our, I mean, me and my, my partner, Nick, we um, business partner, Nick, and uh, this is exactly what, what we love to do. And um, kudos to not being an ivory tower executive producer either. A lot of times the money comes in, that person's just trying to, you know, get a tax break or they are diversifying in some way or some diversification plan. And the movies suffer because of that. And the first thing we ever executive produced, we learned a big lesson about just the little things you said earlier, like, you know, you should be present even though you're not on screen and you're not controlling any cameras off screen or behind, you know, you're not, your job is to make sure that you've created an adequate runway for success. You've put all those crew and, and, and creatives in the best position to be successful. And that's something you have to learn too. That's a skill set. And in the, one of the first shorts we ever produced I really failed in that category and it affected the film. It affected the ending because we didn't have enough time at that location to shoot and get the pickups we needed. So hearing you say that is a big deal. It's, it, it's uh, awesome. Is there a movie that you can think of that inspired you to start getting into film or to do, you know, in hot water? Was, was there a movie that jumps out to you that says, oh my God, this is what I want to do with my life? So I would say it's so stereotypical, but, you know, I think Clerks and Pulp Fiction. Uh, Nothing wrong with that. Not, yeah. And um, Reservoir Dogs. Um, I, I, would, I would say that those made it clear that it could be done without, uh, without going to Hollywood and going through the big the big the machine machine yeah right um but i i grew up i grew up a total film geek and you know it's interesting because you talk about you know an earlier question was about the difference between my mom and my dad's my mom very low tech right my dad always into video and technology and so we grew up with with VCRs and before that he had like a real real VHS yeah 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 or not even VHS, a tape recorder and so growing up like all my friends would come to my house because we had all these TVs and VCRs and projection systems uh, and so I would just be watching movies constantly growing up at my dad's um and so i was one of those guys where i'd just be sitting there for hours with a friend <laughs> we'd be drinking beers and just spouting movie lines back and back and forth at each other and uh, you know we're talking like blues brothers and stripes and like uh, all the animal house like just all these awesome awesome older things um and so i would say if i didn't have something to do i was often just watching movies as a kid. Uh, and I would say that inspired me 
And it was just part of it where just the magic, you know, the absolute magic. And I, and I don't know if that's something that today's generation gets in the same way, but, you know, just going and watching that movie or seeing it, it just felt magical. Yeah. It feels like today that the problem is, is paradox of choice. It's, it's the, the Netflixification of, of media. And it's unfortunate that we blame Netflix because they're certainly not the only um, organization that does it company that does it. They, they just were the ones that perfected it early and everyone copied. That's it's almost like McDonald's takes the brunt of the blame for the fast food industry, even though they might not be the worst fast food place to go to. Uh, but you get a sense that Netflix is making things and just throwing it against the wall and, and seeing what sticks with the audience and then tracking that through, through analytics. Um, Whereas it was a little bit easier to decide what we were going to watch, I think, oh, yeah. I, I think coming up and now it's like, it's really difficult to even figure out what to watch. And unless you're, you know, and then, and then there's the shows. So it's like, right. well, I'm gonna watch a movie. Maybe I'll binge this. And you just, you're just, it's almost like you're overeating. Yes. So you're not really like in like watching the craft. You're like, you're being force fed uh, content. Yes. That that's goal isn't to entertain you necessarily, or even educate you or, or that's the goal is to get you to not click the off button. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you got to get that next episode in there quick. Yes. Um, yes. I, I would, go and, ahead. And yeah. I, I would agree. And it's when, when we were, when I was grown up, you suspended disbelief. You went into a movie theater and you watched. Yes. And there was a commitment there and the amount of distraction wasn't, wasn't the same. And you weren't able on demand to relive parts of that. And so you walked in and you had this narrative experience, almost like listening to a record from the beginning to the end. And I'm not yes. that where we are yeah. now is worse, but it is different. Mm -hmm. And as a storyteller, it feels different. And when I look at something, a story as being linear or whereas I might look at a film project as being linear, it's not always that way now. You know, now it might be that the success of a film is based on snippets that are then <laughs> uploaded everywhere in social and linked yeah. back. And it's it's just such a different experience creatively. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, I wonder like in 20 years, will it make sense to release an album as an artist with the way that you sort of get paid through your streams per song? Uh, would it be smarter just to release a song every month for a year? So here's right. your 12 song album. Eventually it becomes a collection, but it was really just 12 individual streams um, once they figure out sort of how to market that the right way, I think that's what, that's what we'll see. Um, I don't want to let this audience down. We've got, uh, a man of, of many talents as a guest. And so I want to just as a focus on the filmmaker and the creative side that might be listening to this and could learn from your expertise, uh, what is the most common intellectual property mistake new or young filmmakers and creatives make and and what is the first step in protecting their creative work 
Okay. Great question. So when it comes to an intellectual property mistake, Mm -hmm. it would be not owning it, right? Uh, So intellectual property uh, is just like somebody can own real estate. You can own uh, creative expression or property that is based on intellect. And you don't generally have the ability to own an idea, right? Right. For something like copyright, which is for filmmakers, that's a very important thing. Copy, copyright protects the expression of a creative idea that's fixed in a tangible medium. So I tell you this amazing story. If I say it with my words, not protected. If I write it down, if I email it, if I record it on video and then I share that, that expression is now protected. And if you see that expression and you copy it, you don't have the right. So I can enforce against you for intellectual property infringement, copyright infringement. So when we talk about uh, copyright, it's based on authorship. Who's doing the work? Yeah. And so if people, Chris, if they don't understand this, uh, then they're possibly ruining their career before it really gets started. And so I would say the the biggest problem I see is folks just not knowing, just being, I'm going to focus, I'm an artist, I'm going to (laughs) focus on on my art and I'm just let everything else not happen. Well, that's a recipe for, for ruining your career and depriving the world of your creativity because you have to maintain the machine in order for the machine to work, you have to maintain, we, we live in a capitalist system, right? Mm-hmm. You have to maintain the business side of your creativity in order for your cre- creativity to be able to survive. And I'm sorry, but you have to pay rent. You have to get health insurance. You have to do all these things or else you can't focus on being a creative. And that means that folks need to get educated on intellectual property and what kind of agreements are there for intellectual property, right? And having the hard conversations when you're going to work on something being like, no, I'm not just going to work on it. I'm going to have a conversation about what do I want and what am I giving? What are the other people involved in the project? What do they want? What are they giving, right? And so a big question would be who owns the intellectual property? Yeah. And what is the remuneration for the person who doesn't own it? And what is the license that the person who doesn't own it, what license are they getting? So I, Brian, am a cameraman. I'm working on something and I'm not getting paid, right. but I will get credit. I will get, I will get, uh, you know, fed and I will have license to use clips from this project so that I can put that in my reel so that I can get bigger and better jobs. And maybe when I say I'm not getting paid, maybe I'm not getting paid cash, but maybe I'm getting a deferred payment. So if this project does get to a certain level, then I'm able to participate in it. So that's an an example. On the other hand, let's say I, Brian, am a producer and I just bring in my friends uh, and they work on this project with me and then we go our separate ways. 
And Chris, let's say it happens. You know, someone's like, we want to distribute this project, right? Mm -hmm. Well, they're going to have a lawyer who's going to say, let me see all your release agreements. Let me see all your work for hire agreements, your independent contractor agreements. And if the filmmaker producer doesn't have those agreements, they don't own the copyright to the project that they've worked so hard on. And so it's like one of the things that I, my clients say that they really like about working with me is that I know what it is to be a filmmaker. I know, I know the seat that they're sitting in, but I'm also able to say in their language, Hey, before we can move forward with this, you need to take care of, of these initial steps so that we can move forward. And when someone doesn't do those, we have to actually go back and we have to track down the talent and the crew and everybody and, and get the paperwork that should have happened at the front end. And that can be scary because they might, someone in that group might know that they have a little leverage at that, at that very moment and uh, decide to use it. Is, is there any difference internationally around IP um, in that scenario you gave, would they be okay distributing outside the U S or for example? So, um, well, that's like a law school exam right there. So intellectual property, uh, (laughs) most important, sorry, (laughs) the, the three most important pieces are uh, patent, mm-hmm. which protects a technology or, uh, you know, or a process. Um, and that would be utility patent. There's, there's other kinds of patent, uh, but, uh, you know, a technology or process would be, would be a utility patent. A trademark would be something that identifies the source of goods or services in the marketplace. And then copyright as I said, protects creative expression, a fixed medium. Uh, And so there's different paradigms that control intellectual property internationally and globally. Uh, For example, trademark is is protected by by nation. Mm -hmm. And so just because I have a trademark in the U.S. doesn't let me enforce that trademark in China. Right. So I have to actually register the trademark in China when it comes to copyright. It is possible to use copyright in the U S to enforce copyright in other countries. Uh, But you use the word possible. So anything's possible. Right. So, but a lot of distribution and monetization flows through the U.S. And so if, if, somebody, if somebody wants to send cease and desist letters and somebody wants to attack uh, distribution, then they might be able to limit, for example, distribution in China, Japan, India, and, uh, you know, other, Africa – they right. might be able to use uh, concerns about. They might be able to use concerns about intellectual property here in the U.S. as reason to do it overseas. And those overseas distributors, if they are doing deals based in the U.S. and they're concerned about somebody going after them for their U.S. presence, 
if they have U.S. bank accounts, if they're doing stuff that's grounded in the U.S., they might just be like, I don't know, like, I'm not going to risk it. Uh, I would say the larger, more established, more respectable businesses, they want to see everything is delivered, right? They don't want to invest. It's so, it's so difficult, as you know, standing out in the marketplace. And if I have, there's no shortage of films out there in the world that can be distributed every day. There's more and more and more things that are coming out there. So if, if I, if one of my, one of my clients is a film distribution company and we won't distribute projects if they don't have everything lined up. Has to be clean. Yeah. And, and I would hope that overseas that the major players overseas do the same. Somebody could do smaller things and somebody could fib and play ignorance. And so it's possible, but it's not how you build a career, right? It's not, you don't want to use your calling card to the world, your first film (laughs) showing you, you know, being a scoundrel. And I I have a friend here in uh, a friendly acquaintance here in DC who made an amazing film and it never got, it's well known, but it never got major distribution because he never was able to get the releases or the licenses. Uh, and so it, it, you know, it just makes its way, its way around. Uh, but it, it hasn't earned him the money or the acclaim that he would have had if, if he would have had everything lined up. It's not, it's not chameleon street, is it? It's not. Okay. I was going to say that's, that's the best movie that never was, uh, that I can think of it. Uh, there was a company that just did a 4k they're doing a 4k festival run with it and it's oh, cool um it's amazing so if you can go watch chameleon street you'll be like how did this guy not make a thousand more things it's the singular thing he wrote made uh, i think he might have had a spot in one other film in the 90s and you're like how did this happen he's absolutely brilliant um Future of Film Conference. What is it, and and uh, what are its goals? Yeah, and so uh, Future the of Film Annual Future of Film Conference. Yeah, I and say. so I, I Brian, am not part of that uh, production team for that event, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a there's a group, uh, Creative Edge Collaborative in PG County. Yeah, I got that as well. Yeah. Yep, and so. Um, uh, so Pierre Walcott and his team over there, and they're really, they're about uh, bringing voices that have historically been um, silenced uh, from media and, and film. Okay. Uh, they're about giving, giving those communities uh, more representation and a, and a bigger voice. And so a lot of it really is focused on the on the African-American community, people of color. And so Pierre and his team do just do a great job. And so I've been fortunate enough where I was able to create some relationships for them as an organization uh, to bring more, more uh, opportunities and education uh, to PG County and an amazing event that, that that team produces is the future of film. And this is really about what will 
what will film look like? And a lot of it is not just in the technology and the law and the business, but when film really does have that diversity of inclusion, right? When we're, when we're not just looking at it from, uh, from one vantage point, but it really has diversity woven in to it. Uh, and it's a fascinating conversation to have. Uh, yeah, it's, it's one so, of the, to me, it's one of the most exciting things about the potential future of film is that we're going to see content in a way we've never seen it before in the history of film. Um, because yeah. there are so many organizations like creative collaborative that, um, and, and people like yourself that are going to allow those voices and not just allow them, but like give them resources, provide resources and runway to put those stories out there, stories you've never heard about before. And you might enjoy this because I, I really just don't know why we were ever in this spot. I mean, I kind of, obviously I know, but it's like, it just never made logical sense to me while we're in the spot we are in where we need these type of programs, but you being from Florida, being a big football fan. And uh, I saw Dan Lebertard report that Stephen Ross, who owns the Miami Dolphins, was going to hire Mike Tomlin, who's the coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, but quote unquote said he was too hip hop for the organization. And so it's that kind of coded language at the very tops of organizations that really pushes, like you said, those diverse voices out and it's, and it's across industries. So I just thought it was fascinating. I thought it would uh, just like fits right into the pocket of, of Brian Frankel as well. You being from, from Florida, I want to ask you a bunch of uh, rapid speed round questions. Count me <laughs> if you could. Okay. What's the biggest um, challenge you you're facing right now as a filmmaker? Uh, COVID in terms of wanting to keep people safe. Uh, so adapting to, to doing decentralized filmmaking. Um, and I'd also say finding people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've noticed it, you know, we're like with interns, I've noticed in the past, it would, it, there was just so many people who wanted to intern. And uh, I'd say like serious interns now, it's fewer, it, it's harder. I feel it's harder to find people. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, so I just, think finding good people. Yeah. I wonder if the great worker revolution, as they call it, is going to affect film at all. It feels like film and creative work is the thing that these people are leaving their corporate jobs to go do. Yeah. So that would be interesting if it affected film where it's like, uh, yeah, we can't find anybody to hire either. <laughs> like it's, I think people just want to, you know, lay on the, lay on the couch. Um, when you were making all, all the films that I mentioned earlier in the conversation, what was the biggest challenge you had to overcome as a filmmaker and how did you overcome it? So uh, I would say time and uh, there's only so many hours in the day mm-hmm. and there's stuff you want to get done. Uh, and I would say dependency on people, right? Because as, as I don't want to be the one one man band, I become increasingly dependent on the people I work with. Right. Uh, 
And so I think the way that I've overcome it, it, ha- it it's just experience and it's creating what uh, my team has, which is called the framework. And so every person who works with me is given a copy of the framework mm-hmm. and their job is to follow it and to add to it and to streamline it and to edit it. And so we have a living document that breaks things down into step by steps, uh, into procedures, into uh, standard operating procedures lists. And so, I'd love I, to I see that. that. If, if yeah. and, and maybe we can talk about finding a way to share that through our website with creatives, or 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 sample of it. Is it similar to a yeah, like a template? Not 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 exactly yours. Um, is, it, is it similar to like a pre-pro doc? Yeah. Yeah. And, and okay. it's not just, but not just pre-production. It, so in the context of, of doing make a movie in a month, which is where we basically executive batch executive mm-hmm. produce projects. Yeah. Uh, it's what do we do from the moment the lights go on until the moment we're sending out thank you notes. So it's literally a run of show. It, yes. And, and for the Whedon film festival, it's, it's that and more. Uh, and then, you know, we also create a whole system of, of digital files. And so it would be like, okay, this is what you're doing. And then somebody's going to this file and inside there, there's this template. And so it, it is systematizing. And I had one intern where, uh, I mean, it was just talk about the win-win. It, it was just, such a, a good situation where she needed to stay uh, involved um, for immigration purposes. And so she ended up being with me for a year and a half uh, and just a wonderful, wonderful, capable person. And she was the first one who was like, okay, let's, let's systematize everything that we do. And it changed it changed my my work as a producer. It changed my work as a lawyer. It just changed my work because now I really am focused on process, process, process. And I know, Chris, that you guys get it because uh, just to give you a shout out in leading up to our conversation today, like you were really good about sending me the information. Like I could see yeah. you, you have this process in place where I'm not having to proactively ask you 10 questions. You're giving me information you're getting things ready. You're, you're priming the pump um, and you're creating the framework so that we can jump in and we can have a good, a good back and forth. And so, so yeah, so I would say, uh, how do you get the most out of your day? How do you manage people? How do you uh, reduce miscommunication? How do you provide uh, detailed expectations, standard operating procedures, uh, written documents, and communication. That's, that's it. Perfect. And thank you for the kind words. Uh, we figured out how to do these processes through a variety of heart wrenching and soul crushing failures. Yeah. Uh, what, are the, what are the two best pieces of advice you've been given in your career and who did they come from? So I would say one of them is from my mom and uh, I, I don't even know where she got it from. Uh, so my mom 
worked with a, a retired military guy named Herman Soren, who mm-hmm. ran a group called Corporate Dynamics. Uh, Herman's passed, but uh, he's just he was a his job was to go into companies and train them so that they would perform better. Mm-hmm. And my mom, uh, she uh, you know she still shares the lessons that she's learned from her life, and with Herman, pardon me, and and his group. And so this may come from Herman. I can't, I'm not sure, but she always says to me, and she still says it. She says, you either have reasons or results, mm. right? It's really easy to sit on the couch and watch another episode on Netflix, you know, drink a, a, an apple cider, eat some chips and say, oh man, I really could have done this, but that, yeah, right? And that's a great reason but it doesn't get the result. And, and so it, you know, I I would say that has stuck with me where, you know, all right, am I going after what I want or am I just coming up with a story so I can pacify myself and and not go after it? I really love that. That's really boiled down and crystallized. Um, And then what's another one? uh, So, so I would say there's, there's two others. This wasn't given to me directly because I don't have a relationship with them, but I listen to the Tim Ferriss uh, podcast. Sometime, Love Tim Ferriss. And I, you know, I, I really found his uh, four hour work week book. If you take it with a grain of salt, I really found it to be impactful. i never had the expectation of, you know, reading it and being able to work four hours, but he talks about the Pareto principle mm-hmm. where you have a minority of actions that are going to produce the majority of results. Um, and so it's the 80, 20 rule, right? 20% of, uh, the activities are going to produce 80% of the rewards. And so that would really be, uh, something that I, I reflect on like, okay, am I spinning my wheels? Chris, am I spinning my wheels? Right. Am I, am I sitting here doing something just to do something? But at the end of the day, I'm not learning. I'm not increasing my, my footprint in the world. I'm not increasing my impact, right? It's not creating new opportunities. Uh, it's not paying, like not paying my bills. Like what is it doing? And so, and so that Pareto principle, like focus on what is creating the results. Like for me that that's impactful and I'll give you a bonus. Oh, please. Yeah. Uh, One of my, friends from, from undergrad, from, from, uh, from college, not, um, not a sensitive person, not a, uh, you know, not a warm endearing person necessarily, uh, pretty blunt. And something that he gave me as feedback, which was a little painful was, you know, it was like, why not? Right. Yeah or why. And so I'd make some statement about, you know, about, well, I'm doing this and I can't do that. And he, you know, he'd be like, you're full of bullshit. Why not? I don't don't want to hear, you know, and very rarely will somebody like, you know, uh, I'm not going to put up with that, but this is a friend. And when, Mm -hmm. you know, someone that I know, like, and trust, in the context of a greater relationship is calling me out. They have the relationship with me where they can do that. And it changed the course of my life because I was 
I was sitting uh, on a rooftop of a, you know, of a skyscraper and we're drinking and we're talking about what's next and we're talking about all these things. And I talked about where I was and other projects that I want to work on and how I couldn't because of this, that, the other. And I, and I guess it goes to the, the reasons or results, you know, I, I guess it touches on that. Um, and in just a few short words and some friendly banter, I had a light bulb moment that went off where it's, where it's like, okay, you know, why not? And right? what, what's the friend's name? Oh, we'll just call him Mike. Mike. <laughs> Yeah, but pseudonym. We'll call him pseudonym Mike. I like pseudonym Mike wherever you are out there, and it is it is something everybody can use. Yeah. The the all three of those to me touch on a crisis of some sort that every person is going through. I love the eighty twenty rule. I find it. Like to me, it's almost like mathematical magic because wherever you go in the world, regardless of industry, regardless of action, Pareto's law persists. If you go into some organization, you're going to find out that 20% of the employees are bringing you 80% of the results. And it's almost uncanny. It's not 60, 40, it's not 70, 30. It really is 80, 20. And you get on a film set and you find out that all the creative juice and the energy, it's really being driven by that core group that, that came up with the idea that the, the basically the entrepreneurs that got the money together and, and, and got the locations and then everybody else is supporting that vision. So thank you for that. Uh, staying on the, subject of advice, if you had to give filmmakers, and I know you do this through the film festival and other means, if you had to give filmmakers one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, it can be legal advice or creative advice or both, whichever you prefer. If I was going to give them one piece of advice, um, I would say focus and come up with a plan. Right. So. And I, I think those are that is one piece, you know, part of focusing is is coming up with a plan. Mm -hmm. um, so often creatives are like, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a artist, I'm a musician, mm -hmm. I'm a, you know, I'm a writer and I'm a chef and I'm a car mechanic. It's like it's like that's wonderful. That's great. But start off on one, pick one and focus, right? Mm -hmm. Be able to put yourself in positions where you're doing an elevator pitch and, you know, you're wearing one hat and, uh, you know, as a filmmaker, as a creative becomes more successful, then they can afford to wear 20 hats, right? But starting off each individual thing, Chris, on its own is tough. Yeah. Every one of these things is tough. And so just focusing on one. And then when you have that focus, when you say, okay, what's going to open, what's going to open the doors that I want? Like what is going to build me and who I want to be? And then saying, okay, what is the plan? And, and I love the story of Jim Carrey where, you know, he 
wrote himself a check for like a million dollars. You know, he went to the, I think the Hollywood strip and he wrote himself a check for a million dollars. Um, and he said, you know, by this date, I'm going to be able to cash that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he, he envisioned what that career would look like. And he, he worked hard for it. He planned it and he was successful. And, and so I think that is the advice I give. I think everything else is secondary. If you want to be a filmmaker, then see yourself as a filmmaker and plan for you to be a filmmaker uh, and not a filmmaker with 20 other, starting off with 20 other acronyms or 20 other hats that you're wearing all simultaneously. Yeah, I think a lot of times that's about ego and, and self-fulfillment um, to a fault. So focus yeah, on that one ADHD, thing and get it done. Yeah, and also ADHD and trying to have your cake and eat it too and, you know, fear of commitment and, you know, we could have a whole Dr. Phil show. <laughs> we could, we could, we could, we could dive into that. Maybe we'll do a round two and dive into that, Brian, me and you, we'll, we'll, we'll get deep into that. Uh, on that same note though, what are the biggest creative and business mistakes you're seeing newcomers make today? All right. Um, and so I would say, so first off, like, like we spoke about people doing too many things at once, mm -hmm. uh, spreading out their energy, uh, minimizing their ability to, to do um, elevator pitches, you know, not being able to have a clear focus that their community can help them. You know, if you tell your community, I'm a filmmaker, then you're putting those feelers out. Uh, if you're giving them 20 things, there's no hook for them to remember who you are and what you're They don't know how to help you. Yeah. Right. Um, another thing that I, I see people doing are, sh are shortcuts. They think there's a shortcut way to get success mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, them not doing the groundwork. Right. And so a filmmaker who doesn't understand film can't really be a filmmaker. Right. Um, they, they need to understand what it is to actually be making a motion picture. Uh, and so when I say film, I I'm using film and, you know, and digital film, in the same context. Um, but they need to understand what is this medium that they're, that they're working on. Uh, what's, you know, some of the important history of it, what's the technology behind it. And, you know, somebody just putting on the hat and saying, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I don't think they have the ability to make the same impact if they rush too soon to make that declaration. And so yeah. I, I think doing the groundwork, not trying to take too many shortcuts, um, you know, having, you only get so many shots at success. And I think somebody needs to prepare themselves so that they have a good foundation for when they do get the attention and they are offered the opportunity where they can actually deliver on it. Uh, yeah. And the world nothing. knows it when they see it. The, right. the, yeah. There's a, past guest and she's the artistic director at indie memphis her name's miriam bell and when you talk to her it's like oh that's what a film expert sounds like i thought i was no that's someone who's put in the ten thousand hours like they know obscure things right and you know it's 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 not like a it's not like a 
a contest of intellect or anything like that, you know, you can spot that too, where somebody's just sort of, you know, bragging about what they know, but when you can be conversational with it, you can tell it's just natural. It's like, Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. This is, this is who they are. They've dedicated their life to this. That's yes. So, and, and, so and good I totally point. Agree. Brian. I totally agree with this because at the end of the day, it's like, this is our life, right? These mm-hmm. are our lives. And we only have so many hours, so many days, so, so many opportunities. And uh, if I am investing time in a film, who do I want to be with me? And mm-hmm. I want the people with me to have the ability to support the overall mission, which is get the film done, right? Yeah. We're talking about time, opportunity cost, money, resources, and the ability to impact, educate, entertain. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that's amazing about film. You know, the audience will choose and they'll tell you whether they like it or not. And all the ingredients that you have don't necessarily dictate the total success. It's how you combine those ingredients and how it's perceived by the audience. And so, uh, pardon my French, but I don't want someone bullshitting, right? I, I want somebody with me who knows what they're doing. Or they're honest enough to say, I don't know. Yeah, uh, and teach and, me and I, I'll be a quick study because I'm yeah. all in or something like that. Yeah. The biggest thing that I resent is if somebody tells me they know something, they bullshit me, and then it turns out that that they, they were really full of smoke because they've wasted my they've wasted my time. They've taken an opportunity from somebody who should be in their position instead of them. Uh, and they've ruined, you know they've ruined the trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, going back to that core list, it's of, of what mistakes do I see people doing? They're doing too many things at once. They're trying to take shortcuts. They're not doing the groundwork. They're sometimes too focused at others on others. And they're saying, you know, Oh, that person is, is looks successful. You know, that, that person looks happy. That person looks like what they have is, is good. Uh, whether or not that's even true, judging oneself by what they perceive others to have. I see that being a mistake, uh, pressing snooze on tough decisions and tough conversations. I see that as being a mistake, right? Have those tough conversations at the front end before there's money, before there's as much ego, before, you know, there's as much emotion, do it at the very front end or really close to the front end rather than down the line when there's more zeros involved, when there's more possibility for miscommunication, do it early, do it early, do it early. And if the project needs to have the plug pulled, well, you'll know early on rather than wasting a month, a year, a decade. I'm going to steal that from you. I love that phraseology, pressing snooze. That is literally what people do on tough decisions and conversations like, We'll get to that later. And now to these street tacos that we can enjoy together. <laughs> I'm not going to have this conversation with you, Brian. That's amazing. And uh, I got two you're, more. I got, you're amazing, I got, by the way. Thank, thank so you. So thank you for these, these pointers. Oh, give me the two more. We'll take two them. More. So yeah. one is people having too narrow of a timeline. Mm-hmm. So they're writing these things down. If you haven't noticed. All right. They're yep. not, you know, they're looking at, okay. Uh, I just want to get this film done. Right. I just want to make this great film. Well, mm. stop. I, 
you making the great film is meaningless. Sorry to be blunt, yeah. But you know, one of my one of my earliest uh, film professors called it mental masturbation. Right, just <laughs> the act of being creative isn't enough. It's not enough. Yeah. Getting people to see your creativity, having your creativity mean something. Like, what is the bigger picture that you're, the context that your creative creativity sits in? And so looking beyond just the process of the lights turn on, you make a movie, you edit it and you're done. Like yeah. what's leading up to it and what's happening afterward and what's happening after this project. So having a bigger timeline, thinking in the context of beyond the specific creative project, um, taking the blinders off for a second and looking bigger picture. Then once you have that, putting the blinders back on and getting in the moment and focusing here, but having a greater sense of what's your overall plan. And then finally, uh, and I've alluded to it, but I'm going to say it bluntly, right? This concept that you're going to create work and you're going to get discovered, right? <laughs> My work is going to be of such wonderful quality that the marketplace will find me. And I'm so sorry. I wish that was where we are in 2022, but it's just not the truth. Nobody's going to, quote, get discovered, right? Mm -hmm. The overnight sensation is a lot of times somebody who's worked 10 years to become an overnight sensation. Right. Or it's somebody who has really amazing talent by the gift of God and practice in heavens. They have amazing talent. And statistically, they were able to post it and get heard by just the right person and appeal to write this and it works through and they blow up. But that is really, really, you know, for every Justin Bieber who gets discovered because some, you know, someone posts his video online, you know, and he doesn't necessarily do the years and years of, of soul searching and sacrifice that so many musicians do um, for every one of him, there's 10,000 others. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah. And so I would say that people are not just going to get discovered by the virtue of their work. It's the virtue of their work combined with, uh, with a plan combined with building an audience, like organically building a system, building a platform where you're developing your voice in the world. Right. And there's a, and what's a, there's a marketing guy, I think like Seth Godin, Godin Seth Godin. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He really, talks really about guy. It. Yeah. And he talks about having a tribe, right? So mm -hmm. we don't need 10,000 people. I think he talks about like a thousand core people. Like if you have a thousand it's like people, Kevin Kelly concept, thousand true fans. Yep. Yeah. If you have a thousand people, then that's what you need. And that's enough to amplify your voice. So if you're a great singer and you have a thousand people who believe in you, well, you know, there's that old commercial, uh, uh, they tell two friends and so on and so on and so on. And that's mm -hmm. the reality we live. And so if you focus on just getting the core group of people who listen to you, well, my hope and intent for everybody is that that's enough to start getting that, your message out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah the, the analogy I, mentioned from time to time is that over 50% of all businesses that fail, fail before they get their first customer. 
I don't even think, I don't think a lot of people realize that and how difficult it is just to get one person to, to think you're remarkable enough to let loose of some of their dollars. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's, it's a tough thing. And I'm reminded of the guy who did, I'm um, forgetting his name now that did squid game on Netflix. Like where does this guy come from? Well, he's been doing movies for 10 years. We just, you just didn't know it. I mean, because like you said, he's been working his butt off and then he gets his big break. They passed on that thing a hundred times. They finally made it and it became the biggest thing in, in Netflix history, I believe, or, or close to it. So Brian, this has been an awesome conversation. I can't thank you enough. Can you, can you tell everybody where they can find you on the internet, on social media, or where they can maybe even see some of your work? Yep. So, um, best way to find me would be brianfrankel.com. That's my law firm. Uh, that's Frankel my law is F R A N K E L. Yep. B R I A N F R A N K E L.com. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, if you ever want to reach out to me, there's a, some form at the bottom where you can contact me. Uh, another way to see what's going on is Wheaton film festival.com. W H E A T O N F I L M F E S T I V A L Wheaton Film Festival. Will it be going on in November again in 22? Yeah, yeah, it is. And we actually already opened up. Uh, we we haven't made announcements for, but we already opened up uh, submissions. The earliest we've ever done it, I figured. So we just did a soft opening. Uh, we'll start announcing it later in the year. Um, and then another way to reach me uh, is on uh, Facebook. There's a group called DC Filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's mainly for people here in the DMV, but we do have members from all over the world, uh, in DC filmmakers. Uh, and then on Twitter, I'm at, uh, uh, I'm at Brian films. So that's my Twitter handle, B-R-I-A-N-F-I-L-M-S. And so I, I think between, I think between all those things, you can, uh, you can reach me. Um, (laughs) and yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a, it's been wonderful, uh, speaking with you. Uh, and, uh, I, I really just want everyone to know that your ability to make a difference in this world, uh, your ability to be a creative professional, to be a filmmaker, uh, there's only one place that you need to rely on in order to do that. And that's you, right? Like you become a filmmaker the moment that you say, I'm a filmmaker. And so just make the commitment. And that's a big part of my professional career is just delivering that message. It's like uh, the moment you're willing to get off your couch, right? Turn off the TV, put down the bag of chips and say, I'm going to start doing this. That's when you do it. And it, it doesn't even need to be filmmaking. It could be, it could be anything, right? It could be podcasting. It could be because saying I'm going to become a business person, anything, you just have to commit to it. And, and, and then you got it here, 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 here. And Brian, we'll end on this only because I know that you're a lover of riddles. (laughs) I wanted to see if you'd play along. I want to read you a riddle and see if you can get it. All right. Okay, here we go. I have no wallet, but I pay my way. I travel the world, 
but in the corner I stay. What am I? A postage stamp. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> Amazing. That is correct. That is Thank correct, you. my good. friend. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> well done. Well done. And whenever I'm in the D.C. area, which I am quite a bit because Nick is in uh, D.C. area. He lives in Gaithersburg, Maryland. So when I come up there, hang out with him, workshop with him, maybe we can get together um, right there. And it, uh, I think it's right around the corner yeah. um, from Gaithersburg where you stay. We can get some coffee, get some lunch and, and chat it up and, and have a great little film chat. What do you think? Sounds great. I, I count me in hundred uh, percent. All right. I'm there. Take care of yourself. This has been a blast, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. Be- great, great speaking with you. Likewise. Be good, man. All right. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. And you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.